The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We get a special treat today. We're going to have a guest speaker. His name is Ray Vanderlaan. And for some of you, he needs no introduction. But for those who don't know him, he is a graduate of Western Theological Seminary back in 1976. And over the past 40 years, I didn't realize that until I did the math here recently, that he has committed his life to studying the Jewish culture, um, Jewish teaching methods. He has, under, he has graduate degrees in Jewish studies from the United States, Israel, Turkey, Greece, Egypt. I covered them. Um, when Gary takes a uh, uh, trip to Israel, he would refer folks to maybe watch Ray's videos, which you can find online or at his website, Focus on the Family, etc. He's on trip number 260-some, he says, to Israel, and 12,000 people he's taken there. He is the delight. We brought him in, some individuals uh, in the community, 18 months ago, brought him to Central Texas. He came and he spoke. We brought him back again this weekend. We've enjoyed him Friday night and all day yesterday. This morning, he's going to give you a little taste of what we got to experience for the past couple days. So, Ray? Thanks. Thanks, Don. Good morning. Been a real privilege to be here. I thoroughly enjoyed my weekend. Those folks who came, their passion for Jesus, their interest in Scripture, their Bible knowledge. Then the privilege of joining you in worship, the third time for me today, and just to see the excitement and the joy in your hearts and souls as you worship God. And the privilege to not only be in worship with you, but actually to be part of that worship is, is significant for me. So thank you. Thank you, Todd, for that introduction. I always stand there during introductions a little bit nervous because people say these things about you that are so nice and your head swells a little bit. I always find myself thinking, wow, I can't wait to hear what I have to say with that introduction. Um, God always has a way, though, when your head swells a little bit of bringing you back to reality. So when I get an introduction that's so nice, I always feel like something's going to happen to remind me I'm not God, I'm only human. I remember a, a day in school going really well, and the secretary came over the intercom and she said, RVL, everybody calls me RVL, RVL, your daughter's on line one. So I picked up the phone to this little 10-year-old, and I said, hello, this is the smartest man in the world. She waited, paused, no silence, and then she said, I must have the wrong number, and she hung up. I was driving across New York State with her some time ago, years ago actually, and we were talking father-daughter and the sign whipped by and I said, look, Allison, we're almost to Poughkeepsie. She said, Dad, it said Poughkeepsie. And I said, well, that's how they spell it, but here in New York they call, they call it Poughkeepsie. She said, I don't think so. And we went back and forth and I'm thinking, who is this child that's going to tell me how to pronounce the name of a place I've been many times. So first exit, we pull off. She said, where are we going? I said, we're going to find out how they pronounce this. Really? She said, I said, yes. We pulled into the first local establishment. I said, come with me. She said, do I have to? I said, yes. So we walked up, came to the counter. Young man came to the counter, and I said, sir, uh, we're having a disagreement. Would you loudly and clearly please pronounce the name of the place where we are? He kind of looked at me strangely. He said, sure, Taco Bell. And Allison looked at me like, Dad, you're an idiot. And anyway, 
I'd like to share a bit of what's on my heart, what that unique uh, looking through the Jewish window has been, at least for me. And I'd like to ask you to do a Jewish thing, if you would, please. Would you please stand? And as we come into the Word of God, the Jewish tradition is to say to God, I'm all in. I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to be shaped. I'm ready to be touched by your Word. They've used, since ancient time, the words of Deuteronomy 6, which they call Shema, after the first word. Jesus said those words were the greatest commandment, so I suspect he used them as well. I always begin my teaching with a short Hebrew portion. I'll ask you to say that after me. I know you're not all Hebrew speakers, but that reminds us that our story has ancient roots in another time and place. And then I'd like to say it together in English to say it's as relevant in contemporary culture as it was in the ancient Hebrew culture. So say the Hebrew after me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta, Et Adonai, Elohecha, Bechol, Levavcha, Uvechol, Nafshecha. Uvachol, meodecha, veahavta, la reacha, kamocha, amen. Together in English. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. Please sit down for my words. Amen. Through a providential experience in my life, my grandfather, when he sold his farm, provided a gift to send me to Israel to study. I was in seminary at the time. I had never even considered it. I couldn't afford it. And he sent me there. And I've spent my time as a teacher, as a student, trying to read the Bible in light of who the audience was originally. Now, That doesn't mean you can't read it as a 21st century audience. It is truth, in my opinion, throughout history. But it does give a unique perspective to God's story, and I'd like to share just a little slice of that today as an opportunity for us to worship God for what His Word will say, and also a way to say, what did the original audience think about that story? And I'm going to call it a question, actually, that I get asked in class a lot as a teacher. Why do I need to know that? So that will be our subject this morning. So let me start with a question for you. Have you noticed that our God seems to really like stories? If you look at the Bible and just counted them up, about 75 to 80 percent of the Bible is story. Some quite well known. The children here could tell us about Christmas and about Good Friday The other 20-25% of the Bible, much of it is emails and text messages to people who are in the story. For some reason, our God absolutely loves stories, so that most of what He revealed is story. Have you ever wondered why the Bible wasn't more like the Constitution of the United States, with lots of statements and propositions and things we ought to know and believe? Instead, it's one story after another, all woven together in this complex package we call the Bible. 
Well, one of the reasons there are so many stories has to do with who the original audience was. It was written by and to people in the ancient Near East. And they have what some scholars have labeled an Eastern mind. Let me show you briefly what that means. In the Eastern world, when they're going to describe truth or state what is true, rather than making a propositional statement, they prefer a metaphor or a word picture or a story. So where someone in the West might say something like, God is holy, or God provides for me, which are wonderful truths to have and to believe in, an Easterner might say, God is the bread of life. Or, the Lord is my shepherd. Or, God is living water. Now, they're saying the same things we do, but they say them in the form of a word picture or a metaphor that you can touch or smell or taste or see or hear because that's how Eastern people like to relate to what's true. So where I might say, God is love, an Easterner might say, God loves me. Now, it's not that one is right and one is wrong, or one is better, one is worse. They're just two different ways of hearing and understanding truth. But because they're Eastern, and the Bible was written by them and to them, it's important to think about occasionally, what are the word pictures and metaphors, and what must I know about them? Let me show you what I mean by that. If it's a story or a word picture, it has a context. So at the beginning of my class this year, I put this picture up as the students walked in, and a couple of them asked about it. That your truck? That happened this morning. As class began, I put up the caption, and I said, I'm mad about my flat. And a student inquired why I was mad. Did you get your clothes dirty when you changed it? I said to the class, you understand what that means? Of course. And then I said, what if I asked or stated that same statement in a class in London? What would I'm mad about my flat mean in England? I love my apartment. Now, how can the same English words mean something so totally different just because you cross the ocean? The answer is it's the context that determines how the words are understood. The same is true of some of the teachings in the Bible. So I teach my students, when you come across one of those little details in a story that make it a word picture, that make it a story, don't treat them as trivial, but always ask the question, why do I need to know that little detail? Now, that's where the title of the message this morning comes from. Because I chose a passage from the Gospel of Mark that describes a part of Jesus' crucifixion. It says, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Now, here's what I'd like to have you ask. Why do you need to know it's the third hour? That's about nine o'clock, third hour of daylight. What difference does that make? 
Are you telling me if Jesus was crucified at 8.30, it wouldn't have worked? Or if the soldiers had been late that morning and it was 9.30, that somehow we wouldn't be saved? Why do I need to know it? Now, some will say to me, well, the Bible says so. It's just telling you what happened. I agree, and I believe it. But I always want to know, what does it add to the story? What does it give me about the story that makes the story richer, deeper, broader, something? And actually, if you continue in Mark, it will note that at the ninth hour, he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it says he gave a loud cry and he died. Now, my question is, why the ninth hour? Does that matter? Did he have to be there for six hours? Was there some important So ask the question when you come across a detail like that. I would say to my students, why do I need to know that detail? And let me show you, at least in this case, one of the reasons why I think that detail makes the story richer. To understand that, we've got to move back in the story about 1,800 years from the crucifixion and about 150 miles to the south out into the desert that's called Negev. In that desert, to this day, nomadic people live. Today they call them Bedouin. Most of them are, are Arabs and, no, and nomads. They're Muslim. In Bible times, some of the Bible characters lived, making their living with sheep and goats. They lived in tents, like this man, whose name is Abraham, believe it or not, who's a Muslim, a Jordanian Muslim today. There's a Bible character named Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who lived a similar lifestyle. And one day, as Abraham was in his tent, it says in the Bible, God showed up. Now, it doesn't say how. doesn't say whether it was a bright light. doesn't say whether it was a fire. doesn't say whether it was a wind or maybe even something that God took a human form. It simply says God appeared and Abram knew God was there. And God spoke and said, Abram, don't be afraid. I will be your shield. Now, that's an Eastern way to say it. It's a picture, obviously. You know what a shield is. So God was saying, I will protect you. Now, let me ask you a question. If, imagine, if you would, this afternoon, you're sitting in the favorite chair you like to sit in on Sunday afternoons, and you're just kind of hanging out there, and all of a sudden, God showed up. And I don't mean you sort of wondered if God was near. I mean, you knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God was with you in that room. And he said to you, don't be afraid, I will protect you. What would you do? What would be your reaction? Kind of hard to imagine. I was raised in a very religious environment where we were taught to have awe at the holiness and the greatness of God. Not fear, but just in awe of who he was and is. So I think I would probably be on my knees, very respectful waiting. I know what I'd be thinking. Why do I need protection? What's going to happen? But I don't think I would say that. What would you do? Well, I promise you I wouldn't do what Abraham did. Because Abraham doesn't even say hello. His immediate reaction was to say, where are my children? You promised me children. You said I would be a father and Sarah would be a... Where are they? When does that happen? He grabs God by the front of his robe 
and begins to probe him as to why God hasn't done what he promised to do. Now, the Jews have a word for that. Chutzpah. Chutzpah today isn't such necessarily a nice word. It means you're kind of pushy and assertive, and you cut in line, and you take more off the buffet than your share, and you cut the guy off who's in front of you when you leave the expressway. That's chutzpah. In biblical Hebrew, it's a beautiful word. It means persistence, intense commitment. I'll never quit. I'll never give up. I refuse to quit. That's chutzpah. I love to probe my Jewish friends for meanings of words because so often they're central. Uh, Some time ago, one of my friends sent me the definition of chutzpah. And of course, being Jewish, it's going to be in the form of a story. So chutzpah is this. Little boy in fourth grade goes to Hebrew school. You would call it Sunday school. There, the rabbi teaches the story of Jonah. Remember Jonah? God said, go do this mission over in Iraq, in, in Nineveh, and tell them about me. Jonah says, forget it. Got in a boat and went in the opposite direction. Storm came. God brought the storm to put a stop to that. They tried to keep the boat going, couldn't, so eventually they threw him overboard because it was his fault. He's sinking down into the sea, and God sends a whale or a big fish. The fish eats him. He lives in the fish's stomach for three days, still alive. The fish spits him out on the shore, covered with ugh. Jonah's fine, and he goes off and does what God says. That's kind of the heart of the story. Well, this kid freaked out. That's an amazing God we have. Even if Jonah didn't do what he said, God still loved him. God didn't give up on him. When Jonah was about to drown, God sent a fish, and he kept that Jonah alive in the fish for three days. And when the fish spit him out, God said, I can steal you. He was so excited about how wonderful God was. He came home. He had to tell his mom and his dad and his brothers and his sisters and his grandparents on both sides, and even the cat and the dog, how wonderful God is in the Jonah story. Monday morning, he went to school, public school. The teacher said, children, today we're going to study whales. Yeah, definitely. Teacher said, whales are creatures with big mouths and little throats. They can catch big prey, but they can't swallow it, so they have to chew it up. What about Jonah? Oh, the teacher said, I love that story. We should read that in class, children, someday. But it's not true. It's a myth. That kind of stuff doesn't happen. There aren't any whales in the Mediterranean anyway. It couldn't happen. That's an ancient people. It's got a nice uh, point to the story, but it's not. My rabbi, I know your rabbi. He's a nice man. He probably believes it's true. I'm just telling you from a scientific point of view that. And they went back and forth until they were pretty annoyed. Teacher said, okay, I respect you. You may believe it's true if you want, but we're not going to talk about it anymore. It's finished. I don't think it happened. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah, said the little boy. Teacher said, really? What if Jonah isn't in heaven? Kid said, then you ask him. Chutzpah. But if you mean the biblical persistence, the intensity, willingness even to respectfully push God, God seems to like it. 
You need to read those stories sometimes. We're kind of hesitant sometimes to really push God. Respectfully, of course. It's the woman who brings her baby to Jesus. She's a pagan, a Canaanite no less. She says, Jesus, my baby has a demon. Please help me. And Jesus said, lady, you're not Jewish. I was sent to the Jews. And the lady said, but the dogs eat crumbs from under the table. Okay, I'm a dog, but isn't there a crumb for me? And Jesus said, wow, I haven't seen persistence like that, even among the Jews. God seems to love it when his people grab a hold of him and with awe and respect hold God to his promises. So God doesn't bat an eye when Abram says, where are my children? God said, come on outside. You see the stars? Your descendants will be like that in number and probably in quality. Abram said, that's good enough for me. Thanks. I trust you. And God said, but I'm not done yet. I'm going to give you this land for you and your descendants. You haven't even got a tomb to be buried in yet, but you're going to have the whole land. Now, I would have said, oh, thank you. Not Abram. He's got chutzpah. Abram says, prove it. Show me. How can I know for sure? God said, you want to know for sure? You want proof? You want me to show you? All right. I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's make a covenant. A covenant. Now, we use the word, but I'm not sure we're as familiar with that as they were because covenants were common with them. So let me be a teacher for just a moment and give you a quick snapshot of what a covenant was. A covenant isn't a contract, because a covenant, while it was an agreement, created, in their mind at least, a relationship. So when a king or queen made a covenant with captured people, those captured people would call the king or queen father or mother. The king or queen would call those people my children or son or daughter, Because that established a relationship, we are now family. That's why we call marriage a marriage covenant. Because it's an agreement, it's vows we take to each other before God, but in it we agree to establish a new relationship, a marriage. So covenants create relationships. God said, let's make a relationship, let's become uniquely related. Now, in the culture... There are two types. There is a covenant between equals, and that isn't this one, partly because God and Abram aren't equal, but the qualities of it, you'd have to do the background yourself. I don't have time in the message this morning. The other kind is a covenant between a greater and a lesser, a king and his subjects, a queen and her subjects. That's what this one turned out to be. God is the greater, Abraham the lesser. Now, what's unique about that kind of covenant, and I I just need to, to really stress how important it is to catch this for the story. The terms, we call them requirements usually, the terms of a greater lesser covenant are made for both sides by the greater party. So the king might say, here's what I'll do. I'll help you rebuild your walls. We'll fix the water system. 
I'll repair the roads. I'll drive away your enemies. That's my deal. Here's what I want from you. Pay your taxes. Send me some young men from your army. Promise to worship my gods. Build statues to honor me. There it is. The terms are established for both sides by the greater party. And if you're the lesser party, take it or leave it. You want it or not. So Abram must have been thinking, what is God going to require of himself? What are his terms? And God said, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what. I will give you land, this one, just like I said. I will give you descendants, like I promised before, like the stars. And in those descendants, all humanity will be blessed. We call it Messiah. Wow. I'm going to get the land. I'm going to have the descendants, which you already promised. And in me, through me, my family, God is somehow going to redeem the whole world. I like that covenant. But he must have wondered, what do I have to do? And it's as if God said, oh, you don't have to do anything. Just don't ever sin. Don't mess up. Ever. You or your descendants. Oi. You say if you're Jewish. God said, let's do it. Go get me animals. Animal co- our covenants were established by the slaughter of a ritual animal. God said, I want five for this one. I want a cow. I want a goat. I want a pigeon. I want a dove. And I want a sheep. Those happen to be the five animals that will later be in the sacrifice system. So God is sticking the, gluing the two together. That's, again, not something we'll address this morning. Go get me those animals. So Abram went. But if you read carefully, when he got them, he did more than what God told him to. He understood what was happening. He didn't need to be instructed. He took those animals and two birds, and he killed them. The animals he cut in half from nose to tail and laid the halves across from each other, probably on a bedrock place that sloped toward the middle. He put the dead pigeon and the dead dove at the end of the line and created what some have called a blood path, like a stream of animal blood. Now, the cultural practice was When you made a covenant, you created such a pool of blood. First, the greater party would step up, say, these are the terms I agree to, take off his sandals, and walk barefooted in the blood. To say, if I don't keep my word, you may do this to me. I'll put my life on this. And then the lesser party would step up, take off his or her sandals, and do the same. And do the same. If I don't keep my terms, you may do this to me. So Abram sat with that animal blood, that metallic smell, if you know blood. I wonder what he was thinking. 
he must have thought, well, God doesn't have anything to worry about. He always keeps his word. And even if he didn't, who's going to kill God? But I wonder what he thought about himself. I can't be blameless. Sarah can't be blameless. My descendants can't be blameless. If I put my foot in the blood, I'm a dead man. And there will be no need for a land. There will be no descendants. And if God is going to do something for the whole world, he'll have to pick someone else. I do know from the Bible that he was afraid. The text says a thick and dreadful darkness fell over him. That's a Jewish colloquial expression that means to be scared out of your mind. And then, as darkness fell, two symbols appear. One representing the greater party, one representing the lesser party. The first symbol was a fire pot. It's a small jar like the one up on the screen that has holes poked in it. The women gather the coals at the end of the day. They put them in the jar, put a cover on it. You set it out overnight. Little tendrils of smoke emit all night. In the morning, they gather some sticks and straw, pour the coals on it, and you've got fire for a new day. Years ago, I've seen them. Today, of course, everyone's got a lighter of some kind. But it's a smoke symbol. So smoke appeared. Now that makes sense. It's got to be God who's symbolized because the greater party always goes first. But besides that, several times when God showed up in the Bible, there was smoke. The temple filled with smoke when God came into it. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke when God appeared to Moses. The tabernacle filled with smoke when God's glory entered it. So it makes sense that smoke would represent the presence of God that will pass between the pieces. The other symbol was a fire, a blazing torch. That should represent Abraham because it's going to pass second, the lesser party. But there's a problem. There's not one single example in the Bible where fire is used as a metaphor or a picture, where it represents anything other than God. Fire is always God. His glory, His his leading, His punishment, His power. It's like there are two God symbols. First, the smoke, as if God said, that's me, and watch me. And he walked, okay, in symbol, barefooted in animal blood to say, Abraham, I love you. I love your descendants. I love humanity enough to want to send Messiah. So if I don't keep my word, you may do this to me. I'll stake my life. I don't know if that touches you at all. It's pretty tough because unless Temple, Texas is really different than West Michigan, we don't do this often. So it's kind of gross and strange and weird. But think about what God was saying in the pictures of that culture. Can you feel his love this morning? That he would come down from heaven, meet with some people who probably couldn't read and write, 
and go through the motions of an ancient ceremony that said, I promise I will send my Messiah through your descendants because I love them. And he walked through there this morning, for you this morning, as much as he walked through there for Abraham. But now it's Abraham's turn. And I see the old man step up and take off his sandals and raise his shaking foot to step in the blood. Knowing that the moment his foot touched the blood, this was all finished. He couldn't keep the requirements. And then, as it were, God put his hand in Abram's chest and said, Old man, no. Step aside. You can't do this. Let me. And God walked back into the blood in the symbol of the fire, to say, if you or your descendants, even those folks on November 6, 2016 in Temple, Texas, who gather for worship, ever sin, you may do this to me. And at that moment, God sentenced Jesus Christ to death. There was no doubt, Abraham and his descendants, and probably we too, would sin. But God said, I'll pay. I know the Bible says God knew before the foundation of the world that Jesus would die to save those who believe in him. But if you want the moment where the death sentence was pronounced, it's right there in Genesis 15. I see Jesus in heaven watching his father sentence him to die. Apparently this was a big deal to God. Because a couple of centuries later, through his new ambassador, not Abram anymore, but Moses, God said, build me a tent. I'll live in it, you worship me. In front of it, build an altar exactly this size. And I want you to make many sacrifices using those five animals. But there's one in particular. I want a daily sacrifice twice a day of those five animals. I want that sacrifice to remind you and me that I walked through the blood saying, I will pay for your sins. Remind me, remind each other, Every single day, twice a day. And I suppose being Jewish with his chutzpah, Moses probably thought, well, what if it's raining? And God said, then you will get wet. Because I want it every day. What if it's Shabbat, Sabbath? Then do it on Sabbath. What if it's a holiday? I don't care what day it is. Do it every single day. Don't forget. Okay. Did you have a time in mind? Yes, I want the third hour and the ninth hour. Really? Why do I need to know that? Is that going to matter? And so every single day, at the third hour and the ninth hour, first in the tabernacle, 
then in the temple Solomon built, then in that great temple that Herod had renovated into one of the most beautiful buildings in the world that Jesus would have known for 1,300 years, every single day, twice a day, God, please. Now, by Jesus' time, that had become an elaborate ceremony. Come with me. Here's a map of the city of Jerusalem. Here's the Temple Mount. This corner had a tower that was 17 stories high. Here's a model of what that may have looked like. Here's an artist's rendering of that tower on that corner. Notice in the corner of that tower, on the right corner, is a small figure of a man. A close-up would show you that he's standing in a carved niche with a trumpet. Probably not that kind of trumpet, more likely the shofar, which was familiar to them. In fact, the Roman soldiers destroyed that temple sometime after Jesus had died and gone back to heaven. And the archaeologists in the 80s actually found the niche. And you can see it today in Jerusalem. In fact, the stone on the niche says the place of the blowing of the shofar. Not far away, about 600 meters, was the temple. In front of the temple, that altar that had been prepared to receive the blood of the animal. Standing in front of the altar was a priest with his knife to the throat of that chosen animal of the five God had given to Abraham. Somewhere nearby, a trained priest in reading time was watching an hourglass or on a cloudy day, a sundial. Because God said, third hour, ninth hour, don't miss it. And the time slowly passed, and it was two minutes to to nine, it was two minutes to three, one minute to nine, one minute to three, and then it was nine o'clock, or it was three o'clock. And the signal was given to the priest up on the tower, And echoing through those streets with those stone buildings, the ancient sound of the desert to bring God's people's minds back to God's promise to Abraham. And the city would fall silent. And in the silence, the priest took his knife and cut the throat of the animal, caught the spurting blood, and threw it against the altar to say, God, you promised us. Every day, twice, for 1,300 years. Come with me to one of those days. There's two differences from ordinary days. It's a holiday. Josephus says three million pilgrims came to Jerusalem, a city of 80,000. So the city is packed. It's Passover. And just outside the city wall are three men on crosses. They were nailed there 
as the shofar blew at nine o'clock, announcing the sacrifice has begun. They had hung there all day, and I suppose the one in the middle looked dead already. He hadn't said anything in a while. The man watching the sundial, for it was strangely dark, noted it's a minute, two minutes to three. The man with the shofar finds his place in the niche, and then it's one minute to three, and then it's three o'clock. And the signal is given, and again, that ancient sound. The city fell silent. And in the silence, the man in the middle raised his head. And in the gagging, choking voice of a crucifixion victim, he screamed, It's finished! And he died. At exactly the ninth hour. just the way his father promised he would. And his blood dripped into the ancient dust where his father had once walked in blood. And I don't think when he said it is finished, he meant simply his earthly time or even his time on the cross. I think that's true. I think it is finished meant, Father, I did it! I did it all! I kept your promise. I see him hanging there, waiting to hear the shofar to know when to die. And I think that's part of the reason I need to know that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me a moment. Father, I don't have words. The pictures, the sounds are too strong. I want to thank you first of all, for that Eastern way of picture and story. Thank you for adding to the truth that we've already read or heard from the Bible, adding the power of the pictures. But I want to thank you most of all for the promise you made to a sinful man and woman, a promise you made not only to Abraham and Sarah, but to us as well, that you would pay for our sins. And then I want to thank you for a thousand years of daily remembering until you kept your word. Thank you.
that that means we are in relationship with you from the moment we believe. In our Messiah's name, amen. Thank you. Go with the grace of God. Amen.